Well, thanks for listening to A Podcast with Killer Whales. I'm Allison Morrow, your host, and we're lucky to have one of the Southern Resident Killer Whales preeminent experts, uh, Brad Hansen. He's a wildlife biologist with NOAA's Northwest Fisheries Science Center. And Brad, you have been intimately involved in the research about the Southern Resident Killer Whales, J-Pod, K-Pod, and L-Pod, the focus of this podcast, um, trying to understand their diet and their health. And you've really been involved in a lot, so there's a lot to talk about. But probably the best place to start would be to just give people a brief primer on what you've been doing up until today. And then we'll go into, you know, everything you guys have planned in this upcoming year. So let's let's try to kind of go back to some of the big questions about these whales that you've been trying to answer over the last few years. Sure. Yeah, so, you know, with the recovery plan that was essentially published in 2008 is sort of our 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 roadmap for the research that we're going to do. And so that recovery plan identifies risk factors and data gaps. And the four primarily risk factors for the population are prey availability. But part and parcel to that is you got to, first of all, identify what the diet is where you can really talk about prey availability. And that's, you know, that's uh, the total number of, of prey that are out, you know, in the ocean it's also prey accessibility, which means the whales can find and, you know, the, the fish that are in close to them in the environment. And then it's also prey quality, which is includes the contaminants that uh, that prey contain, as well as the size and chloric content of the prey. So that's that's number one. Second thing is uh, what that was identified was contaminants, and I really see sort of what we're doing now is is in incorporating that into a broader category called health assessment because contaminants are one part of that, but it's an important part and we've we've looked at that a fair amount, but we're continuing to to look at that particular aspect but in sort of a broader context. Uh the third is uh disturbance uh by vessels and that includes vessel presence and vessel noise. And then finally small population size. And the main thing we're concerned about there is the potential for inbreeding. And then finally, the the main data gap that was identified was where the whales go in the winter. And so through a combination of satellite tagging initially, and now we're uh, essentially just using uh, acoustic recorders primarily out on the outer coast to look at their occurrence, you know, there during the winter, that's how we're addressing that particular thing. So we've got a lot of background information we put together, and so now we're working on some more specific aspects to these different uh, risk factors and data gaps. So one of the research projects you're about to start up again is what you call D-tagging. What is a D-tag, and what does that help you understand? Okay, a, a D-tag is a essentially a hydrophone and some accelerometers. It's basically a small computer in a waterproof package that's uh, about the size of you know, a small brick, um, not quite as heavy, but uh, and it's streamlined, and it's attached with four suction cups to the whale for uh, a period of a few hours, and it essentially records uh, everything it hears uh, in the environment, as well as with the accelerometers, it also records, and a pressure sensor, it essentially we can reconstruct the dives of the whales in three dimensions, as well as record the ambient sound, other killer whale sounds, the whale that the tag is on sounds. So we have been able to get a lot of information recently about uh, what 
what the foraging characteristics of the dyes of these animals. So we can basically hear the, the whale um, clicking, and then when it locates uh, a prey item, it, it starts to uh, uh, elicit these buzzes, which are very fast series of clicks. And then we can see the whale essentially rotating around underwater through the, the sensors. And finally, uh, we are able to, in some cases, hear them actually crunching down on the prey. And then because we're following the whales at the surface, at least during the daytime, we've been able to collect uh, prey remains in some cases. But in, in what we've found in some of these deployments is that actually the whales are consuming the prey underwater and we actually don't see some of the prey remains. So some new things that we've found is that males forage more than females, and that's not a huge surprise given the caloric needs uh, of these uh, larger animals. Uh, but we we have been able to figure out that um, the way they uh, locate and essentially hunt down Chinook salmon seems to they they seem to have somewhat of a routine, if you will, in the way that they do that. So we're continuing that work. Um, you know, this year we did it, we uh, had done it for a few years, and then uh, looking at primarily daytime foraging behavior. Uh, last fall, we started a project to look at nighttime foraging behavior, so we will be continuing that again this coming September. Why would you want to know their nighttime or daytime foraging behavior at all? What, what could we possibly do with that information? Well, one of the things that we're trying to assess is the foraging rate of the whales, and, and we're working with our colleagues from Canada who are deploying the same types of tags on northern residents. And so we're using northern resident whales essentially as a comparative population, and northern residents seem to be doing fairly well in terms of the populations continuing to increase. And uh, the, so what we're trying to determine is if, you know, prey is scarcer down here, which we think it might be, that the whales that we would see a foraging rate that is lower. Since you're someone who uses this information to track where the whales are going to find their food, were you surprised to learn that they were off the coast of California a week ago? Is that a surprise to you? Is that abnormal, or is that sort of what you would have expected to find at this time of year? No, I'm not really surprised. It, the, the, the likelihood was low. Um, in that they typically don't go down into California um, this late in the year. But having said that, I mean, one of the things we're particularly interested in looking at currently and why we are continuing to have acoustic recorders out on the outer coast is to try to determine how much of the time the whales are spending at least off the Washington coast because our previous data from the satellite tagging that we have done as well as the other acoustic recorder data from previous years seems to show that for the most part, the whales tend to spend a lot of time off the Washington coast during the winter. However, having said that, we saw in 2007, which was a year that um, there were relatively low salmon returns to the Columbia, that we didn't detect the whales that much. So we know right now that this is uh, we're in a period of time when uh, many of the Chinook stocks are depressed because of some of the environmental conditions that occurred back in 2015, which included the drought in California, the blob, as well as a weak El Nino, that um, the juvenile survivorship of, of, uh, of Chinook has been, uh, was probably a lot lower. And so what we're expecting to see is, you know, uh, reduced adult 
I interpret this is to be as the whales are going to other places in the range uh, searching for food. And in case people are new to the podcast, I probably should just back up and say that the difference between the southern resident killer whales and other killer whales, like the transient killer whales, is that they only eat fish. They don't eat mammals like uh, seals and sea lions, and they particularly like Chinook salmon. That obviously has become a problem for us in our area because our Chinook salmon returns are very low, so the whales aren't getting enough to eat. Brad, as you continue to do your research, does that become more and more clear, the importance of Chinook salmon to these whales? You know, we're at the point now we have a fairly good idea in most seasons what they're interested in. And, you know, but this is something that, um, you know, is, is a relatively small sample size, and we're trying to better understand in these years, you know, when uh, Chinook returns are lower, you know, what do the whales do? How do they respond to that? And and there's a number of different ways that they potentially can. I mean, first of all, they can, you know, go to different areas. And, and whales, you know, have evolved uh, to be able to cover a, a, a large part of their home range in a relatively short period of time. We know from our satellite tagging data that we collected before when we tagged K-Pod, for instance, that in 2013 in Puget Sound, a week later the whales were down off the Point Reyes, California. And in fact, that year they made three trips to California. Um, and they're basically they'll go down there and turn around and, and come back, you know, up into Washington waters. And so, you know, trying to understand, you know, where they're they're spending their time is really important. So that's just one of the ways that they, you know, can can essentially respond to lower prey. The other option is they can try to maybe switch to other prey that might be more available. Um, and so, you know, again, continuing to monitor their diet to the extent we can is, is important in trying to look at that because while Chinook salmon appears to be the preferred, preferred prey item, we do see them taking not only other species of salmonids such as, you know, chum salmon, coho, um, as well as steelhead. Some of these are not seasonally available, uh, but some other species such as halibut and lingcod are uh, because they, they don't tend to move around like some of these other, uh, like most salmonids do. So anyway, those are, uh, you know, those are things we're continuing to try to look at to see how the whales might be responding, you know, to uh, changes in, in prey abundance, or, or at least a primary preferred prey abundance, which you know seems to be Chinook salmon. When you have that information, how does that affect management of, say, vessel traffic or some other challenge? Sure. Yeah. I mean, what I had mainly described, I think, was just what we what we were learning about their foraging um, patterns and whatnot. That information, so. Combining that information with the acoustic information that we're collecting is really important for determining if there's masking going on of their communication signals or their echolocation signals. And that's really the ultimate uh, goal for this is to see if we know that Harrow Strait's a fairly noisy place, and the question is, is are those noise levels in uh, are, are those noise levels essentially uh, restricting the ability of the whales to uh, successfully locate fish as, as well as predate on them? You know, I hear criticism every once in a while as I talk to people about these whales that we're studying them to death. I hear that all the time. We're studying them to death. We know they need more food. Why don't we just figure out how to get them more food? 
What do you think are still the questions that need to be studied? Why do you think the, the research is valuable? Well, like you say, I mean, when I started working on Southern Residence, you know, yay on 20 years ago now, but more in a more focused sense, you know, just the last 15 years, you know, we we collected some information on diet between 2004 and 2008. We're still seeing changes in some of that diet information. And so, like you say, the you know, we're in a situation where the whales are potentially changing what they're doing. Um, and so just because you've collected information previously doesn't mean that that information is, you know, is the answer. It's it, it Things may be evolving in, in terms of what is going on with the whales. I mean, we're in a situation now, of course, where we have, the, you know, the population, we had that baby boom in 2015, and, you know, now we're, we're in a situation where we've only had one calf born in the last three years. And so, uh, you know, the, the situation for the population has changed, and how are they, you know, adapting, you know, to this changing environment? And so it's not there are there are new there are existing questions as I mentioned that we have not been able to fully answer and there are many times as it is the case with science many times there's new questions that are brought up in the process of answering you know a specific question. So with the satellite study, you put a dart tag on the whales. One of them is L95 who later is found dead and we find out from an infection due to this satellite tag. Can you take us back to what happened there and any lessons learned on how you're studying these whales that you took from that so as to reduce the harm? I mean, obviously, when you do science, I'm sure there's always some kind of impact on the environment. You're always trying to reduce that. What what happened there and what have you all learned from that? Well, sure, and in any of the approaches that we take, um, you know, are have mitigation, you know, components to them. You know, I, I think first of all, it's important to understand that we actually had spent several years developing, uh, you know, what we thought was a safe satellite tagging approach to doing this. I had worked with uh, my colleague Russ Andrews, who had, had developed this particular tag, and then with my other colleague Robin Baird from Cascadia. Uh, we started deploying these tags back in about 2006 on Hawaiian cetaceans um, that you know were not endangered, and so that we could study what the you know potential tissue and and health impacts were to the animals um, in a situation where we could could see the animals on a regular basis. And then once that was accomplished, we transitioned to <clears throat> uh, satellite tagging. Uh, transient killer whales here in the Pacific Northwest as well as uh, resident-type killer whales in Alaska. And again, uh, trying to understand, you know, what, first of all, we're learning something new about what these whales were going and where, what they were doing, but also, you know, to try to make sure that we weren't seeing any overt, um, you know, major impacts to the animals. And so even still, we one of our main mitigations was we were only tagging uh, uh, adult uh, or young adult males in, in the population. We were not tagging any of the females. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, this was a situation where <clears throat> um, I think we uh, underestimated what the potential was in terms of, 
you know, the animals that typically succumb to this particular uh, fungus that L95 did were, are, you, you know, typically thought to be um, in some way immunocompromised. And, and so this is one of the concerns we have had about this population is just that there may be disease, you know, diseases in the population that is, is resulting in them succumbing to this. And so I think that one of the things that this has pointed out is while many many people think that the animals are starving to death that's it's actually probably not exactly correct they do in some cases appear to be you know quite malnourished and that they're you know very very thin and emaciated but that's not all of the animals that uh, are, are are having that happen and so this is one of the reasons that we're looking at, you know, the health assessment of the animals um, much more closely now. And this has sort of come out of the L95 issue is trying to understand, you know, why animals that, you know, appear to be relatively healthy just are susceptible, would be susceptible to something like this particular fungus. And, and as well as trying to determine our, you know, our, the the world of diseases is also something that's evolving, and this particular fungus that uh, L95 got has only been recently documented um, in wildlife populations here in the Pacific Northwest recently. And so our colleagues at Cascadia Research Collective have been documenting it, as well as with uh, folks at the uh, Washington Department of Wildlife have found it in harbor porpoise as well as harbor seals. And so much like another fungus called Cryptococcus gadii that was, went through the porpoise population about 15 years ago, um, we're wondering if, you know, this is a situation where there's something has changed environmentally that is allowing some of these other disease, you know, some of these diseases to emerge that uh, we didn't, you know, previously think would be a threat to, to these animals. So, um I think that the you know the main thing that's come out of this is our focus on trying to do a better job of understanding the health status of these animals. Uh, you know, some whales you know exhibit extreme health um, you know conditions very well. Uh, whales in general don't do a very good job of that. I mean, and particularly wildlife in general. Basically, if you don't look you know in good shape and you don't keep up. Um, they, they, you're really right on the edge of dying at that point. And uh, so these animals keep going and going and going. And I think J50 last summer was a really good example of that. That animal was extraordinarily emaciated, and yet it stayed with its family to right up to the end. And, um, you know, while that particular animal, again, was a situation where, you know, it appeared to be starving to death because it was so emaciated, the question is, was it, you know, was it because it didn't have food available to it? But, you know, you had a situation where other pod members were, um, you know, present and were, you know, seemed to be in relatively good condition. Um, what we think, based on what occurred, was that the animal probably just wasn't interested in eating, and this was because of some underlying disease condition that we still haven't been able to figure out. And it's very challenging because... We're in a situation working with these wild animals where, you know, typically if, you know, an animal is sick or humans are sick or whatnot, you go to the doctor, they 
they may take a blood sample and, and blood will give you a varied idea in many cases of what the health status of a particular animal is. That's something that we can't get from these animals. So we're having to rely on, you know, sort of an overall assessment of their behavior, but as well as we're trying to figure out how to use uh, feces and breath and things that we can get a hold of to better assess what their health status is. So it would be like if you had a human who gets the flu because they have a suppressed immune system, for some reason, the maybe they wouldn't have gotten it. So if the food issue is a contributing factor to their death, but maybe not ultimately what kills them because they are more susceptible to disease since they're not getting the nutrition they want. Is that kind of what you're well, saying? Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're, what we're thinking is, is if you are on a lower nutritional plane, i.e. you're somewhat malnourished, you know, it, there are, this potentially could set you up for having a weakened immune system. And this is one of the reasons we've been particularly interested in looking at contaminants is that we know that the contaminant levels that southern residents have are relatively high, and this could predispose them to being more, you know, likely to be immunocompromised. And then, you know, the, given that they live in a more urban environment, uh, they may be also more predisposed to being exposed to diseases that, you know, wouldn't a uh, northern resident population might not be exposed to because they live in more remote environments where there isn't, you know, this urban setting. Because, you know, thinking about discharges of, you know, various things into the water, um, you have two very large, um, you know, urban centers, Vancouver and, you know, the whole Seattle, Portland, or Seattle, Tacoma, you know, um, Everett area. And this all drains into the Salish Sea, and whales spend a lot of time in this particular environment. So do you think it's possible we find out that actually none of them have been, quote, starving to death, as we often say, but actually died of a disease? Is it possible that, that we find that out someday? Yeah, no, I think that's the case. I mean, one of the, it, one of the things that, you know, I did learn at the – workshop our colleagues at our Southwest Fishery Science Center have been doing photogrammetics on the whales and they they noted that of the 15 whales that have gone missing in recent years nine of them only only nine of them had showed clear signs of emaciation and so the emaciation may not mean that they're necessarily starving to death so there could be some underlying disease process going on but the fact that you had another six animals that didn't show any clear signs of any sort of disease process going on you know could have you know could be you know indication that there is you know some disease or diseases um essentially going you know through the population and we've seen this before, like I, like I was mentioning before, this particular fungus that had uh, essentially established itself in the Pacific Northwest called Cryptococcus gadii. It actually was is something that was normally found in subtropical environments. It was associated with eucalyptus trees. Uh, somehow it managed to uh, survive. They think that if ground zero, if you will, was a park in Nanaimo, uh, British Columbia, up on, the, up on Vancouver Island, because it wasn't marine mammals that it was first seen in. It was actually seen in pets and humans. Um, and cryptococcus is one of these diseases that attacks the, the respiratory system. And so in many of the cases that we saw in marine mammals, the animals looked to be in absolutely 
you know, spectacular condition. I picked up quite a number of Dolls porpoise and Harbor porpoise back in the early 2000s. And you go up to these animals and you go, oh, my gosh, they look robust. But what had happened was this particular fungus had attacked the respiratory system and caused congestion uh, to the point where their their breathing capacity had been reduced to, you know, just a few percent of what it normally is. And, you know, for a diving animal like, you know, marine mammals, you know, pneumonias and any type of respiratory infection is something that just, um, it, you know, causes death very, very quickly. You know, I, I think that the situation, unfortunately, uh, with that Southern residents are experiencing is more complex than what we had I guess, at least from my perspective, when I started working on these guys about 15 years ago, was uh, more complex than uh, what I had hoped it would be. Um, it just makes it more challenging uh, to try to get to the bottom of, you know, what's you know going on in the population. And I think it's important that to, for people to realize that in some ways this could be a moving target to a certain extent, and that we think that one thing's going on, and then you know something else essentially comes in and is also affecting it. I mean, one of the things that, as I mentioned, that we're interested in was looking at, um, you know, small population size, and i.e., you know, you know, could we have, what's the potential for inbreeding depression, because we have documented inbreeding going on in this population. Um, and so there's there's always the chance that there's, you know, some sort of, you know, genetic uh, component to it, um, you know, or... Like I say, there's some environmental uh, aspect to this that, um, you know, because the environment has changed, you know, since, uh, you know, since prior years. Because I, the question I'm sort of asking myself at this point is that, you know, we have about the same number of breeding age females that we had in the late 70s, and the population was able to grow from that. So what I continue to be is optimistic about the population in the long run, despite the fact that the population viability analyses do show that it's probably going to decrease because we don't have a lot of, uh, you know, juvenile females in the population. But, you know, looking beyond that, um, you know, these populations all had to start from some sort of founding event. And, you know, a relative, you know, probably was, you know, one or two matrilines. And, uh, and I hope that we don't get to that point. Uh, but, the bottom line is, is that, you know, they all grew from a relatively small population. And I think the main thing is that it just has to be, you know, animals that are viable from the standpoint that, you know, killer whales, what we need to be seeing is females that produce viable calves, you know, right from, you know, the, the time that become sexually mature, you know, in their mid-teens, up through when they become senescent, uh, you know, essentially they go through, you know, same thing as menopause in their early 40s. And so what they need to be doing is producing a calf every five years, um, and those need and those animals need to survive. And then the population will grow. But, um, you know, we do have concerns about uh, the fact that we have relatively high contaminant levels and how that may or may not be affecting, uh, you know, the, the ability of these calves um you know to to survive and and of course you know you know prey availability being um as um uncertain i guess or fluctuating as it is could cause issues relative to you know the animals just not being able to be uh well nourished through you know 
their whole uh, growth cycle, you know, beginning on their calves up through sexual maturity um, when they get into their, you know, early to mid-teens. So, Brad, with all of these challenges facing the whales and still mysteries to unravel with just 75 of them left and so few births and just it just seems almost insurmountable. Do you still have hope? I mean, I guess it would seem crazy to continue on your way doing all the work you do if you didn't, but do you still have hope for this population? And if so, why? Well, yeah, like I was saying, the the situation is that all of these populations of killer whales had to come from some sort of founding event, which was probably a small number of animals. In the case of southern residents or, or of killer whales in general, because they're, you know, matrilineal. In other words, they're female-based. You know, you typically have, you know, a mom and her offspring. And so if if the these nuclear females, if you will, um, you know, are able to successfully uh, reproduce and provide, you know, and produce viable calves that, you know, then go on to do, do the same themselves, you know, the population is, is going to grow. But you know, there's going to have to be uh, suitable habitat, and in this case, what you know that translates into, are, you know, viable populations of of Chinook salmon. And you know, these whales feed across, uh, you know, an immense band of of uh, Chinook habitat, and certainly the potential for you know um, climate uh, changes to affect uh, Chinook salmon viability are, are out there. But uh, I, I think that you know, in, in the long run, the potential does exist for them to do that. And I think part of what my part of what my hope rests on is the fact that uh, one thing about salmon in general is that they're a very tenacious species, and if you give them habitat, you know, in rivers and estuaries and and whatnot, um, and the uh, they're they they do quite well, you know, quite rapidly. So. Um, and because they're on a you know a shorter time scale you know reproductive cycle of only just a few years, you know these populations can you know grow quite quickly and and so we do see lots of fluctuations in them. But um, when given the right conditions, uh, their you know populations can go grow rather quickly. And I think that you know the whales have the potential to respond to that. I, I mean I do feel optimistic. I mean I generally feel that way. It's it, it is. Uh, it's frustrating when things are, you know, and it's a bit depressing when calves don't survive and females, you know, wash up dead and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, I think that what we try to do is learn as much as we can from, it's just like L95. It was, you know, one of the most uh, horrible experiences of my life and career. But, um, you know, you have to put that aside for a moment and say, okay, so what do we learn from this and how does this help us go forward? Yeah, I mean, I guess for all of us, that's that's how we have to look at challenges, right? Whether it's whales or something else in our lives, we just got to try to learn from it and figure yeah, out how yeah. to become better, right? Yeah. So yeah, and, good and, advice and, for all of us. Do you have anything for people who are wanting to participate in in the recovery of these whales that may not be like you, you know, out on the water intimately participating in this research but can still do something? Is there anything those average joes of us can do well sure i think that you know uh, you know one of one aspect is just you know thinking about the choices we all make every day and that's hard um because it's hard to know uh you know what what actions have more of an environmental impact than others um but that's 
and people are busy and you know have got jobs and kids and so on and so forth and that makes it really challenging to to know what the right decisions to make are but i think the other aspect too is to be engaged in the whole process of uh you know being supportive of the types of laws and and those types of things that are going to benefit uh the animals and that's you know and and in this case we've got two you know animals that are linked quite closely that um you know both are essentially in trouble and you've got besides southern resident killer whales you've got chinook salmon and, and chinook is you know the the problems with chinook essentially preceded southern residents by about you know almost 30 years some of the first listings uh on chinook salmon occurred back in the early 1990s and and so when you have one endangered species eating you know another endangered species it's makes it you know doubly challenging but uh you know our agency is trying to address this on a variety of different uh fronts in terms of habitat restoration and uh <clears throat> uh hatchery reform and as well as you know potential uh restrictions on on the water relative to harvest of salmon as well as uh vessel impacts and, and so i think you know being aware being educated you know and trying to support those types of actions that will benefit not only southern resident killer whales but also their primary prey are uh, is really important okay well uh Brad Hansen wildlife biologist with NOAA's Northwest Fisheries Science Center Brad thanks for being on the podcast today you bet thanks very much I appreciate it